The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Hey, uh, my name is Ryan Church. Uh, I'm one of the guys on staff here at the Inn. Glad that you are with us. One of the things, perhaps you've experienced this in your own life, perhaps you've experienced it even as recently as last week, is that sometimes in order to hear really good news, you have to hear bad news first. Last year you may, or last year, last week you may have heard things on Good Friday, such as it's it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. In order to really hear the good news of Easter Sunday, There's bad news that precedes it. Sometimes in order to hear the good news, you got to hear the bad news. Sometimes in order to see light, you need to see the darkness. Karen alluded to this last week, and I want to emphasize an experience that that we had uh, at spring break in the Dominican uh, just a few weeks ago of, of getting away from all the light pollution, dimming all the lights at, at the place that we stayed and being able to look up and see stars that you didn't know were there. You saw lights out there in the sky that are just spectacular. And even though I've looked at the sky a countless numbers of times, there was, there was something about that moment, about being in a totally dark place that helped me see light that I rarely get to see. It somehow made the stars that much brighter because there was darkness all around. Sometimes in order to see light, to to see what's there, we have to have darkness. In a more, uh, I don't know, perhaps whimsical, if not freaky, or I don't know what it is, uh, many of you know I was, I was in a fraternity here at UW. My freshman year, we had a chance. The, the Husky football team was playing down at Cal, and a, a carload of us uh, decided to go to the game and, and figured we'd stay at the, the chapter house down at Cal. And so we hop in a car, bounce down there. And at that time, the, the University of California, uh, the Golden Bears, their football team wasn't that good. So a lot of guys in the fraternity down at Cal had bounced for the weekend. So it was really just... I don't know, there must have been like eight, ten of us that were, that were hanging out in this huge house. And so the, on Friday night before the game, we're down in, in this basement of this house and, and you know, kind of doing what you would imagine fraternity guys doing on a Friday night before a football game. And, you know, we're, we're hanging out there and, and uh, there were a bunch of guys in, in our house that played on the, the UW hockey, uh, the, the club team. And there was, there were these, these hockey sticks all around the basement of this house. And we're like, oh, you know, are there guys in the house here that play on the, the Cal hockey team? And they're like, you know, and these guys go, hey, guy, the, the guys that actually live there, like, hey, guys, should we show them? They're like, yeah, let's do it. So they, they turn off all the lights. So we're just sitting around, you know, BSing with a, really a group of guys that we don't really know all that well just talking, and it's totally dark, and, and it stays this way, and, you know, it's, like I said, it wasn't a rager, there's, like, yeah, ten of us, and so we're just kind of hanging around, <laughs> and we're, and it's probably like this for 10, 15 minutes, and then this guy goes, all right, guys, ready? One, 
two, three, and then the lights come on. They all grab hockey sticks, and out in the middle of the room, there were these three rats. And these, these guys go running with their sticks and poof, slap shot them into the wall. They called it rat hockey, okay? And it was apparently just something that these guys did for sport. And, you know, I guess, I guess there was the built-in mechanism of kind of cleaning up their house, whatever that means. I'm like, I'm like, do you really need rat hockey or could you just get a darn cat? Either way. But so, so these guys are playing, they're playing rat hockey. And in order to play rat hockey, it was, it was engaging the darkness that brought out what was, what was really there. Of course, you shed light on it and, and you could see it. But it was only after you cut the light to the room. Okay, interesting way to do it. But obviously, it's something I'll never forget. Tonight, we continue a series on calling. And any time we necessarily engage, or any time we engage this question of calling, we necessarily engage a question of clarity. So many of the conversations that I have around here, around what am I called to, are often filled with confusion. Last week, there was a great talk preached from up front by Karen Hostler, one of our interns. If you weren't here, it's a talk worth listening to where she talked a little bit about Moses and about her own story, about the temptation to reduce our call to something that we do, and yet, at the same time, uh, being simultaneously overwhelmed uh, by the things that we are, are called to do. And, and she, she talked about uh, um, her own encounter, as with Moses, of, of experiencing the presence of God within that, um, that, that, that sustained uh, Moses and, and Karen shared in her story, her no matter what. And, and for Moses, a lot of us often think about, if, if I could just have a burning bush experience, well, that would make everything a lot clearer. If God would just make himself that clear to me, well, then I would do whatever. We, we want that kind of certainty. We want that, that type of clarity. So much so that, that we will look for anything to kind of give us this type of sign, right? I, I hear this every now and then. That, yeah, you know, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to major in. And I got home that day and there was a, there was a mailer from the UW Business School. And it was totally the Lord telling me I needed a major in business. Well, okay. Or it was just the marketing people at UW sending a letter, Okay. I don't know what it was. Even, even more so in dating and romance or whatever. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, I was walking to class. I kind of had this, you know, this online crush, this girl I was stalking. And then she <laughs> totally she totally crossed my path on Memorial Way. How about that? It's like, well, she was probably going to class too. Okay? Some people call that a God incidence. Honestly, sometimes it might just be a coincidence. It's okay. I don't know. I do believe God as the great choreographer. But all that to say, we look for crazy things like that to be signs, to somehow give us this sense of, of what am I called to? Isn't this a sign that makes it clear for me to make a decision? Obviously, we do this on the one hand because we don't want to own up to the decisions that God has given us to make. But on the other hand, we want that Clarity. We want God to show God's self to us in the same way that he did to Moses, or as we will look at tonight, Isaiah. Now, the problem with this is that as you look throughout the story of Scripture, this type of clarity 
often does not make that type of, of difference. For example, God made things very clear in Exodus 20 in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Things that are, are pretty clear. If you continue on in, in reading things like the book of, of Leviticus, you will find uh, in the Torah over 600 guidelines that are clear. And yet there seems to be a lack of clarity. Even for these, these people of God who received this, clarity is exceptionally hard to come by. But we desire it. So as we continue in a series tonight, we're going to be looking at, at the prophet Isaiah and his uh, kind of fantastic interaction that he had uh, with, with an angel. But it, it needs to be said in, in the category that some of you might call boring, but I would call important, so this is boring but important, that, that the five chapters leading up to this really frame what we're going to be talking about tonight. That in ancient Israel, this is, this is around, I don't know, the year 800 BC or so, that, that um, Israel is kind of this small country and there's this big empire, Assyria, that's kind of rising and really becoming uh, the power of the day. And, and as such, Israel finds itself distracted. They, they, even though they have been told, do not worship any other gods, no other gods but me, they kind of get fascinated and distracted by these other gods and, and turn these other, uh, uh, these other cultures, these other countries' gods into, um, into idols. Similarly, one of the things that God had said, and this is a refrain that you would see in the prophet Isaiah, is, is this refrain of justice and righteousness. We heard a, a little bit about what this, what this means earlier from, from Jonathan, but simply in ancient Israel, the mandate was care for your widows, care for the poor, the wealthy have a responsibility to help out the people who are weaker among them. And this was not happening. And, and it's at this point that I, I do want to want to kind of take a sidebar here to highlight some of the things that we've already heard here tonight. Some of you have been around for a while, so you know this. But but when when we talk about the gospel, I want you to know that that what we're getting at here at the end is that we want everybody to know the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus for people to uh, to be saved, to know the Lord, and and. Uh, and to experience a salvation that is real. But we want to make it clear that it is not just something that happens in the future that passes you unto heaven, that we believe the heart of God, even per the Old Testament, is that it needs to make a difference right now. God's heart is to have things changed right now, as it was in ancient Israel, as it is today. And that's what that's what the story that Jonathan and Victoria were telling uh, from up here. We have... Uh, we have a responsibility as those seeking after God's heart to get to know the character of God. The character of God is revealed even in the Old Testament says, take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. Take care of the poor and the weak among you. And part of what sets up the sixth chapter of Isaiah that we're going to look at is that the ancient Israelites were not doing this. And God was upset about it. And so what ended up happening was God is uh, basically saying, look, I am with you, but it seems that you all have made a decision to not be with me. 
And so basically the Assyrians are going to come down and go totes dom on you guys. And it's going to be a bad, it's going to be a bad scene. It's not going to be pleasant. Uh, and it's, it's going to last a while. Uh, so, so get used to this. At the beginning of Isaiah, what you see are a group of people who are distracted, disobedient, and weak. Bad news. Dark news. But it sets up chapter 6 as we get this ray of light in this fantastic narrative of the calling of the prophet Isaiah. And it's that text uh, that we want to read right now. This is Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And as we read this, I invite you to use your imagination. Remember that when, we are, when we're reading the Bible, we're talking about God here. Uh, it, sometimes it's hard, and this is one of those texts where you can, it would be easy to write it off as, as somehow mere fantasy, where you just go, what in the world does, does that mean? If we're going to have any shot at comprehending this, and if we're going to have any shot at having, uh, finding any meaning in it, I would argue you're going to have to use your imagination. So if it helps you, close your eyes and just hear this read. Uh, but, but use your imagination as, as, you, as you hear this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a king that was around for over 70 years in Israel, long, long reigning king. Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook the temple, and it was filled with smoke. Imagine an earthquake. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal, a hot coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your sins forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go. Actually, let's just stop with send me. Send me. I want to highlight a few things about this text. First, holy, holy, holy. We're doing a series on calling where we're trying to focus more on the caller. And the thing that you have to catch here when it says holy, holy, holy is that God is separate. God is different. He's not like you. He's not like your dad. He's not like your boss. He's not like your professor. God is different, yet this is the God, as Karen shared with us last week, that is present. Separate, different, but here, but present. Isaiah says, I am not holy. 
I am not worthy. Like looking up at the stars in contrast to Israel. Uh, Think about those five chapters that I described. The people are not looking at God. They are turning from God. They are not doing what they're supposed to do. They're disobedient. They're distracted. And all of a sudden, you get the glory of the Lord right in front of you. And relative to what Israel had been doing for 70 years previous, Isaiah does exactly the opposite. Instead of being desensitized, Isaiah says, I am not worthy. Right in that moment. He recognizes there's this same perspective that you have when you're sitting under the stars of going, I feel small. I feel insignificant right now. Isaiah has this incredible vision of an angel that doesn't feel worthy. That's why the angel covers his eyes and covers his feet. Because even the angel feels unworthy because it's the glory of the Lord. So there's this contrast of these five chapters where there was no holiness and now this chapter where there is the glory right before you. And then comes to the part that I really want to focus on tonight. You are forgiven. Your shame is taken away. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. A fancy word for forgiven. Notice that God did not demand anything of Isaiah. What happened was was Isaiah immediately has this perspective and this messenger of the Lord comes and touches his mouth with coal. In in some ways, there's this imagery. Anytime you see an image relative to fire, it is an image of purity. It's an image that in some way burns away that which is sin, that guilt, that shame, and thus cleanses Isaiah, and then, of course, the end of what we read, here I am, send me. But what precedes that sending is your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The bad news is that Israel has turned away. The Assyrians are going to take over, and it's a hard road because they rejected God. But the good news is that this sheds light on the fact that God is staying with them. He's committed to them, to be present with them. This is that shining star in the middle of darkness that original hearers of this text would have connected with. There's a star in the darkness. There is hope. Well, in the same way that for ancient Israelites, this would have been a hopeful text in a dark situation, I think it's a situation that is not unlike ours. In our context, we experience the pressure to be independent, to be strong, to be one who is not weak, to be one who does not have to ask for help or even for forgiveness. We don't want to be that guy or that girl. But the reality is this. And it's the same as the original context. The reality is that we sin. The reality is that you sin. Sometimes it's not on purpose. In the same way that I'm sure that over that course of 70 years, there were many that were simply desensitized to the reality of God's presence among them. But there are other times where you sin and it is on purpose. It is flat premeditated. 
The reality is that in the same way that we create idols, or that the Israelites created idols and got distracted and were disobedient, aren't we exactly the same way? Now, this isn't always the most pleasant or easy thing to talk about because if I'm to reflect on my own life, I spend a lot of time trying to hide my sin. I spend a lot of time trying to fix myself from it. But the reality is that it is only God that can make me worthy, that can heal me of this sinning problem that I have. And so in a series where we are asking a question of calling, where we are seeking clarity in calling, what I want to assert to you tonight is one place of clarity that you find. One feature of the character of God we can find right here, and it is that God forgives. God removes the guilt, removes the shame, forgives the sin. That can be clear. You may not know what you're doing with your life. You may not know what you're majoring in. But one thing you can know tonight is that the heart of God is one that longs for you to know as one who is called that you are forgiven. Your shame and your guilt can be removed because it is then that I get this great image of then being released without the weight of that thing that weighs you down, that guilt that you carry around because you told a white lie to a friend because you didn't want to be straight up with them and your intentions were good, right? You didn't want to hurt their feelings. So you, so you lied to him. Uh, then there, there are those, those other things where not only did you cheat on the test, you planned to cheat on the test. You thought about how you would do it and get away with it. Somehow you were able to bear false witness and you thought about how you could get that fake ID. We sin in a lot of different ways. But the caller is saying, you're forgiven. I sin every day. And, and for those of you that, that might be sitting here going, okay, I certainly didn't, I don't sin in any of the ways that Ryan said. And in fact, I'm not aware of any of my sin uh, in this moment. Um, well, what I can guarantee you at the very best you are, you are part of a community that sins. And for all of you here, I know that's true because I sin. <laughs> and you're here. We're in community together. I sin and I try to stop, but I have to confess the same things over and over again. There's many things that over the past 10, 15, 20 years, I've grown tremendously in, and there's still some things that trip me up. I'm aware of how selfish that I can be in some of my friendships and all the more so in the relationship that I have with my wife where, where we are both asserting the desires and the will that we have and neither one of us is, our, is getting our way and we treat each other poorly. Usually it's me being the primary uh, offender and instead of, 
of course, the temptation is always to somehow check out. Check out from, from Julie and into my fantasy world where I get whatever I want, where I am the king, and where, where my rules are the ones that stick. So often my sin comes out of my selfish desires. The bad news is that this is the condition that I'm in. But some of the most special, some of the most, dare I say, intimate moments that I have had with my wife, some of the things that have, have sprung my friendships to greater depth or to new heights is that moment when I'm able to go and say, I'm sorry, my bad. Will you forgive me? in those moments where I have done nothing to earn it and where they say, you're forgiven. Your guilt, hey, let it go. No shame in what happened. Let's move on. That's the moment my marriage gets better. That's the moment that my friendships go to a new level in the experience of being forgiven, when I have to walk into that darkness, which I hate. It's never fun. I have, I have the internal dialogue that I literally have to talk myself into it like I'm going to jump off a cliff. One, two, three, confess. What if our role as those seeking after the character of God is to be agents of that forgiveness and that grace that is realized fully in Jesus Christ in the world. One of the most fun, foundational, fundamental confessions of the early church was, Jesus Christ is Lord. And often they tacked on at the end of it, and in his name, our sins are forgiven. It's one of the most special things that you can do. Can you go this week and tell somebody that they are forgiven. Maybe it's a parent, a friend, a roommate. Go somebody, go tell somebody that they are forgiven. It's a powerful thing. Who might you forgive? Because what I want us to do right now is for us to enter into our own darkness individually. For us to enter into a time of confession. This is a time, uh, and I, w- I only want to take, I don't know, say uh, three to five minutes. Kyle's going to come up and, and play some, some music to, to help us reflect. But for us to, to work some things out with God, to confess. Um, maybe it, it are, the thing that you have to confess tonight is simply a way that you've been desensitized uh, to God. It's something that as you're reflecting, you realize, oh gosh, I've missed it here. I'm sinning here. Maybe there are some things that you know you've been carrying around. Sin that you have committed, it was premeditated, and you need to get that out there. You need to engage the darkness that maybe some of those rats can come out that we might be able to bring them into the light and smack them around a little bit.